Well, if you've got your copy of the scriptures, go back to Exodus chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be covering quite a bit of ground, Lord willing. We're going to work our way through chapter 21, 22, and 23 this morning, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Let's pray together before we dive in. Father, we sit here this morning under the sound of your word, but we have heard many voices this week. These last seven days have brought us lots and lots of voices that we have listened to, some of them being very, very good and some of them being very, very bad, some of them being true, some of them being false. We've lived in the world and we've heard the siren calls of the world, we've browsed our social media, we've watched our political analysis on the news, we've heard so many voices screaming from our devices and television and marketed to us to tell us what the good life is. And here we sit this morning, and I want to confess before you that I cannot compete with all those hours. None of us can. We are discipled every single day by the voices we listen to. And, but your word is powerful. So you can do more in 45 minutes than all the hours that we've consumed this week. Your word breaks the cedars. Your word strips the forest bare. Your word brings life to the dead. Your word brings sight to the blind. Your word created the universe. Your word raised Jesus from the dead. So Lord, you can speak through this word this morning. And as we dive into what seems like such a strange and foreign part of your word, we pray that you would help us to apply it in a Christ-centered biblical way this morning to our lives. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Incline our hearts to your word and not towards selfish gain, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had Joe read Romans 13 in part because I didn't want him to read 21 through 23 and put us all to sleep. 21 through 23 of Exodus is case law. It's all the applications of the Ten Commandments that Moses spoke to the people of Israel. You remember where we are in the story of the Exodus. God's people have been delivered out of bondage. They were brought through the wilderness and now, or through the desert, and now they are at Mount Sinai, which is where we have been with them for a number of months now. On Mount Sinai, God came down in fire and smoke and gave them a law. We call it the Ten Commandments. They would have called it the Ten Words. And this law was written with the finger of God, and it was spoken, and it, was, it, it brought fear to the people, as we saw last week. And then... The people requested that Moses would speak to God on their behalf. Remember that? We talked about him being a mediator for them last week. And so now he is going to exercise that role. And in chapters 21 through 23, he begins to unpack what the Ten Commandments actually mean, some of the practical day-to-day applications of the Ten Commandments. So we saw in Romans 13, just a few moments ago, if you're paying attention when Joe was reading, was Paul summarizes the Ten Commandments in this way. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. In other words, the point of the law is to create a loving life, a loving life toward God and a loving life toward others. And so this morning in Exodus 21 through 23, we are going to consider what loving God and neighbor looks like in everyday life. And the rules that we're going to find in this section of Scripture are examples of how the Ten Commandments are applied daily. It deals with hot topics like the death penalty and slavery and premarital sex and orphan care and lawsuits and fistfights and property and the poor and loving our enemies, all the stuff we love to hear about. 
but it also deals with the ordinariness of life. Tony Morita, pastor in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, writes, this section shows us that God is concerned with how we relate to one another in day-to-day life. We spend most of our days in the ordinary, going to work, seeing neighbors, raising kids, and other seemingly routine tasks. So how can we glorify God in the ebb and flow of our day-to-day dealings? That's what this text is all about. So in one sense, as strange as this text is going to sound to us, there's no text that's really more practical in the entire book of Exodus than chapters 21 through 23. Now, before we get into them specifically, I want to lay out a few introductory remarks to put up some guardrails and safeguard us as we walk through this passage, because if we don't have these, what I'm calling redemptive guardrails, we could go astray. So number one, these rules are given post-redemptively, that is, after is after the people of Israel have received salvation. They are post-redemptive. They are after they've been redeemed, after they've been delivered. Why is that important? Because they're given not as a way, as we've repeated repeatedly throughout this sermon series on the Ten Commandments specifically, but these are given, these rules are given not as a way of entering into relationship with God, but as a pattern for enjoying that relationship. It's very important. Because God had already said at the beginning of Exodus 20, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're my people. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're a royal people. That's who you are by virtue of my covenant with you. They hadn't done anything. So that's really critical for us. As we read these, we can divert back unintentionally to our old legalisms and lawlessness and think, okay, I've got to do these things because this is how a person gets right with God. That's not how a person gets right with God person gets right with God, as we've sung repeatedly this morning, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in him. But these rules are given as a way to help us understand what it means to live out that relationship and enjoy that relationship. That's number one. Second introductory observation. These rules are given in a specific context. There is a specific historical moment that is going on in Exodus 21 through 23. They are given for life in a specific place at a specific moment in history, which means that they are not therefore timeless instructions, but a law code for a particular people living at a particular time in redemptive history. Many of these laws are concessionary. That is, they were put into the life of Israel to to control the way their society was going to behave. They're not setting up a utopia, but they are responding realistically to a sinful people in the people of Israel. They are distinct from the Ten Commandments, and Moses makes this very clear. In fact, as we'll see next week in chapter 24, verse 7, these laws that we're considering in Exodus 21 through 23 are not written on stone like the Ten Commandments were. They were written on parchment. Chapter 24, verse 4 says that they were written with the hand of Moses, which is a contrary to the Ten Commandments, which were written with the finger of God. So there is a difference and even how the people of Israel would have understood the ten words versus this case law that's in chapter 21 through 23. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 21 in verse 1, we read, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. These are the ordinances. These are the applications that you are to set before them. So this is case law. It's more descriptive than prescriptive. So that's the second introductory remark. First, These rules are given after redemption. Second, these rules are given in a specific context. Third, these rules are not exhaustive. These case laws were written to deal with specific situations in Israel. 
They were guidelines, and they were never intended to address every conceivable situation. There are 613 case laws in the Bible as examples for how to love God and neighbor. If you think that's a high number, 613, it isn't. In the U.S., we have 20,000 laws for owning and operating a handgun. Our tax code is 3.1 million words. There's no one more loving and less legalistic than God. <laughs> he gave us 613. If anyone knows how to make, make some laws, it's us. And there are some weird ones. I was looking at examples of weird laws, because we're going to come across a couple weird laws this morning. Boiling a goat in its mother's milk and not doing that and all this kind of crazy case law. But we have some weird ones too. Did you know that in our great commonwealth, it's illegal to carry ice cream in your back pocket? How'd that law get on the books? In Pennsylvania, you cannot catch a fish with your mouth. In Washington State, you aren't allowed to shoot Bigfoot. In Minnesota, you're breaking the law if you sponsor or participate in a pig chasing contest. In New York, it's against, it's against the law to take selfies with tigers. And our country isn't unique in its weird laws. In New Zealand, it's illegal to fly in a hot air balloon with a rooster. In Scotland, you can't ride on a cow if you're intoxicated. I thought that was the only reason you would ever ride on a cow. Number four, these rules must be approached carefully. So they're not exhaustive, but they have to be approached carefully. In other words, according to 1 Timothy 1.8, we need to use the law lawfully. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 8 that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there's an unlawful way to use the law, and there's a lawful way to use the law. So we must avoid the twin ditches of either throwing out these laws completely as though they have nothing to teach us, just skip it. I mean, it's all Old Covenant Israel. doesn't have anything to do with us. But neither should we urge our congregation or nation to adopt them as they are. So those are the ditches we're trying to avoid. There is discontinuity in that we are not a theocracy, so that is, rule under God, a nation under God's rule. So we need to be careful of a one-to-one -one correlation. And at the same time, God's character is revealed in his law, even in case law. And so we learn here what it means to love neighbor. And so we gather principles from the case law that helps us understand how relevant it is and how to practically love neighbor. So we should seek to le learn them and then make responsible, Christ-centered, wise, new covenant application of these case laws. And that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. I'm going to try to make wise, responsible, Christ-centered, new covenant application. So let's get into these specific laws now. Micah 6.8, a very key, important verse in the Old Testament, says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Micah, no doubt when he was prophesying that or preaching that to the people, had in his mind the law of God. Now, we're not sure if he had Exodus 21 through 23 in mind, but as a summary of how God required his people to live, he said, what does the Lord require of you? He's shown you what's good. So what's good? to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
And as I studied these case laws this week, that sounded and began to, began to feel and sense like that's a great summary of what God is trying to accomplish here. He's trying to help us understand what it means to walk humbly with God, to love kindness, and to do justice. And so those are going to be our three points this morning. We're taking them from Micah 6.8, and then we're going to see what we learn in Exodus 21-23 through that helps us understand what Micah 6.8 was all about. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? What does it mean to love mercy or kindness? And what does it mean to do justice? So number one, God's people should walk humbly. Now, the passage that we're considering this morning is Exodus 20, verse 22 through 23, verse 19. And this passage is bracketed with worship. In other words, the case law that Moses gives the people of Israel is bracketed with emphasis on worship. That's important. That teaches us something about the way we think about case law. The first thing that's most important is worshiping God. Walking humbly with God before and after instructing them about how to live lovingly and justly with their neighbor, they are instructed to worship God. Because it's, as we've seen in the Ten Commandments, it's by loving God, Commandments 1 through 4, that Commandments 5 through 10 on loving neighbor are actualized. You can't love neighbor well without loving God well. This is what we see in Exodus 20, verse 22. Look with me there. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. So he's reemphasizing the second commandment. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you will not build it of hewn stones, For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So let me talk about a couple principles for worship here from this passage. First, the principle of simplicity and modesty. Now, it's difficult to work out the significance of the precise details on how the altar should be constructed. But Douglas Stewart, in his commentary, is helpful in suggesting that they're constructed, these altars are constructed in such a way that all the glory goes to God rather than the artisan who hews out these stones. Now notice the principle of simplicity that God desires. They were not to build an altar that would draw attention to itself, but one that was simply of the earth. God gave these instructions to avoid the risk of unbecoming exposure of the priest at the altar. Now this may well represent another move away from the more sexual priestly activities of the pagan nations around them. In that same way, we strive to be simple in our worship. We sing, we read, we preach, we pray, we practice the Lord's Supper and baptism, we do the things that New Testament, New Covenant worship tells us to do. It's simple. Being overly reliant on creative gimmicks or ornate structures can distract from focusing on God. This is not a show. Worship is not a performance. It's a communal celebration of God. And so we we value simplicity and modesty, not just because the old covenant did, but because the new covenant did. In fact, John 4, when when Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well, she has all these questions about worship, no doubt dodging the issue of her sin, but she's talking about, well, our father said we should worship on this mountain. You say we should worship on this mountain. Should we worship in Jerusalem? Where should we worship? He says, listen, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you worshiping God in spirit and truth? Are you seeking God? Are you desirous of God? I mean, the the place is secondary. 
The heart is primary. So simplicity and modesty. Same thing with the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He says, in vain do you worship me, not only because you teach us to the traditions of men as doctrines of God, but as you worship, your heart's far from me. So it's simplicity and modesty that God is after. Secondly, you notice the centrality of sacrifice. While the full details of the sacrificial code will be worked out in the book of Leviticus, which is the book after Exodus, this serves as a powerful reminder that the life of Israel is dependent on sacrifice for sin and worked out in sacrificial thanksgiving. So right here at the heart of worship is sacrifice. That is atonement for sin, recognizing that we are sinners, recognizing that we need forgiveness from God through an atonement. That's why we sing so much about forgiveness and atonement and need for the cross and Christ's death because that was the central element of Old Covenant Israel's worship and it's the central element of New Covenant worship as well as Christ is the fulfillment of all that sacrificial system and he is the one who is the center of our worship. So the principle of simplicity, the principle of modesty, the principle of sacrifice are all there for, to, be, uh, to be observed in Old Covenant worship. So this section then is mirrored, we're not going to read uh, the, the, the totality of it, but in chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, they are given instructions on Sabbath and other festivals and how they, to, they are to observe those. And in their different ways, each of these festivals serves to remind the people of their dependence upon God and the right response of wholehearted worship. The fact that this section, again, I've said it before, but I'll say it again, the fact that this section begins and ends with a, with a focus on worship reiterates the functional priority of the first four commandments for shaping the whole life of Israel. So let me apply that. Before we can, we can think about what it means to love neighbor well, to love kindness, to love mercy, to do justice, we have to have a heart that prioritizes God and his worship. So prioritizing worship of God, prioritizing that as central to my life, as, as the thing around which I orient, is crucial to live out the rest of the life that God calls us to live. We cannot live out a loving life for others if we are not loving the Lord our God. Remember what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 6 to the parents in Israel about how they're supposed to bring up their children and raise them and to do it day to day and, and, and ongoing in an ongoing way. What does he tell them first to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This shall be on your heart and you shall teach them to your kids. So again, the priority of worship, the priority of devotion to God, the priority of centering our lives around him, that's what it means to practically love God and neighbor. That's where it starts, walking humbly with God. So that means time in the word, time in prayer, time with the church, time in corporate prayer, time in corporate worship, orienting our lives around God's means that he has given us for, the, for worshiping him. And that's, that's critical if we're going to love our neighbors well. So that's the first point. God's people should walk humbly, and that is walk humbly with God in worship. Number two, God's people should love mercy or love kindness. The word can be translated both ways. So this, in this section, we're going to look at chapter 21 and begin diving in. Um, but we're going to see two things in chapter 21 and chapter 22 of what it means to love kindness and why kindness and mercy was such a value to God. Think about it. Why, is, why are God's people to be marked by such kindness and mercy? 
Because God is marked by kindness and mercy. That is the way he has treated Israel. He has been unrelentingly kind. He's been unrelentingly merciful to them. And he wants them to be unrelentingly kind and merciful to one another as well. So we're going to look at this under his directions for how to handle slavery in Israel and also how to to treat the vulnerable, the weak in Israel. So let's read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, that is without having a spouse, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now I know that whenever we read or come to passages about slavery, Based upon our American history, that just inevitably raises our skin on our arm or the hair on our arms a little bit in the back of our neck. And it should. But we have to understand that slavery in Israel does not equal slavery in America. The slavery is very different from that in our nation's history. It was not oppressive and it was not based on ethnicity, which is two totally different characteristics than, than our own nation had. Let me just point out three things quickly about the slavery that's mentioned here. This slavery is clearly voluntary. It was not imposed. People would hire themselves into another person's service, usually owing a debt. And so as a result, they voluntarily offered themselves to work for someone. In fact, the very kind of involuntary slavery that categorized the early American experience is condemned in this section of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon knew it. All, the, all of our English Puritans knew it, which is why they condemned and would disfellowship any American church that would try to do such a thing in the name of God. Look at chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Man-stealing was what characterized the early American experience, not old covenant slavery. So we have to be very clear about that. The Bible universally condemns what our country practiced in its early days. This slavery was also temporary. They worked for six years, and then they were set free, and they didn't leave empty-handed. They were furnished with everything that they needed, according to Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15, to start a new life. This service was also civil. There was zero abuse allowed. Look at chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. There was no abuse allowed at all. Also, this slavery preserved the sanctity of the family. Whereas in the American experience, slavery often disrupted the family and separated the family and ripped it apart. In this case, the slavery in Old Testament Israel preserved the family. You see that in verses 3 and 4. If he comes in single, he goes out single. But if he comes in married, he goes out married. In other words, he keeps his family there. Now look at verse 4, which is a bit of a head-scratcher. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now this seems unfair at first glance. Remember the female slave? 
But you have to remember this. If a female served herself into slavery or a family put her into a hired working situation in hopes that she would have a better life and hopes that maybe she could get a leg up and, and get another chance, if she contracted to work for her master for six years. Now, if she got married, it would be wrong for her to terminate her contract. So the husband could do one of three things. He could wait, he could purchase her freedom, or he commit, could commit himself to work permanently for the master, which is what we see in verses 5 and 6. Now, regarding female slaves, we read the following in verses 7 through 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, it seems that the father was not trying to get rid of her here, but rather improve her prospects for marriage. So the woman received protection in three ways. If it didn't work out, she could not be sold to foreigners. Her family could ransom her, redeem her out of slavery. And if she became engaged to one of the sons, she was treated as a daughter. And then if the engagement ended, she was provided food, clothing, and marital rights. So you see how just this is. Even in the concessionary terms in which this slavery code is adopted to kind of curb the effects of sin, nevertheless, God is ensuring that mercy is given, that love is extended, that kindness is preserved, even in a, in a, a less than favorable institution like Old Testament slavery. Also, we see here other examples of God's people called to love, mercy, and kindness. We see they are to show compassion to the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, and the poor. Look at chapter 22, verse, seven, uh, verse 21. Chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lenderer to them and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it's his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Don't you love God? Don't you love how compassionate he is, how concerned he is that people treat each other well? In terms of compassion for the weak and vulnerable, no one exceeds God. He says, listen, I know when that child of mine has a cold night because of you. I know when my child has a cold night. You give him his coat. What, what God knows this? What God knows when a child of his, the sun goes down, and he says, that's his only covering. It's his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep with? That's our God. That's how he acts because he is compassionate, and he wants us to do the same. We also see respect for God and leaders in chapter 22, verse 28. We see giving of offerings in chapter 22, verses 29 and 30. We see the call to avoid partiality 
in chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8. And then we see love for enemies in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. Let's look at a few of these. Look at God and leaders in chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. On giving offerings, in verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So there's generosity and offerings being given. We also see the avoiding of partiality. Look at verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man and be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. We see uh, impartiality. Don't favor the rich. Don't favor the poor. Preserve justice. We also see love for enemies in verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So even if it's an enemy, you shall treat, it as the, treat them as if they were a friend and do for them what you would do for a friend. And then verses 6 through 8, we see again, you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall not t- you take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Again, God pins all this underneath verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Listen, brothers and sisters, here's the fundamental reason we show love and kindness and compassion, because we know what it's like to be treated with love and kindness and compassion by God. We know what it's like to be wallowing in our sin without hope, without God in the world. We know what it's like to have nothing and have God give us everything, spiritually speaking. We might have had the world's goods, we might have had a good family, but spiritually speaking, our bank account was in the red. We were headed for hell as good, upright, middle-class, church-going Bible folk. And we were headed for hell because we didn't have a righteousness that would pass God's standard, namely perfection. And so we recognize what it's like to be oppressed under sin, what it's like to be disadvantaged in our sin, what it's like to have God treat us with relentless grace and unmerited compassion. We didn't deserve it. And so if anything is to mark God's people, it's we know what it's like to be spiritually poor. We know what it's like to be spiritually oppressed. We know what it's like to be under the yoke of sin. And we know what it's like to be released. We know what it's like We know what it's like to have the greater year of Jubilee, to be set free from our slavery, to be brought into sonship with God, to be brought as a daughter and a son into the family of God, to be forgiven of all our sins, to be imputed a righteousness that we did not earn. Both sections are pervaded with this strong sense of love and concern that Israel is to have for the weak among them, especially in contrast with the practices of the nations around them. This was to set them apart. And brothers and sisters, this is what is to set the church apart. This is what has always set the church apart. When the church loves the unlovable, the most vulnerable, shows compassion to the weakest and to the poorest, the church is at its brightest. The church is at its most powerful. The church is at its most effective. And when it doesn't do that, it acts like the world and the world knows it. This is, our, this is the weapon that we wield. Love, compassion, 
mercy. Justice is paramount, and the Lord is especially concerned that the weak receive justice and compassion. And this legislation appears to be a very natural outworking of both the character of God, who has already redeemed a helpless enslaved people, and the people who have received that redemption. Therefore, we go and do likewise. We go and do for others what our God has done for us. That's the way it works. That's redemptive math. So point number three now, final point. God's people should do justly. So we've seen that God's people were to be marked by walking humbly with God. Secondly, that they were to love kindness or mercy. Finally, God's people should do justly. Now let's look at various passages here. First of all, we're going to look at some of what Moses says to the people regarding how humans should treat other humans that they've injured. So look at chapter 21 and verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, in other words, he wasn't trying to kill him, for God let him fall into his hand, that I will appoint for you a place to which he shall flee. Now you get the origin of the cities of refuge that are so common in the Old Testament. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and when found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Again, these are applications of the fifth commandment. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes it to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So you see the origins of the good Samaritan there. When a man, even though that, that particular Samaritan was not responsible for this man being in the condition he was. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hands, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Notice children are in the womb. Just throwing that out there. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye, we've read that passage before about striking the eye or striking the tooth. Now, what you have here is case law concerning intentional and unintentional homicide in verses 12 through 14. You've got assault on parents and kidnapping and cursing of parents in verses 15 through 17. You've got life-threatening injuries in chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. And then you've got permanent injuries in chapter 22, or chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. So all this law is designed to, to, to help people who have injured one another or been responsible for that to deal justly with each other. Now we also have in verses 28 through 32 what happens if animals are responsible for injuring humans. Not humans to humans, but animals injuring humans or each other. Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner's been warned but has kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is opposed on him, 
then impose on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So you see responsibility there. Also, and I'm not going to read all of these examples, but in chapter 21, verses 33 through chapter 22, verse 15, we have laws of restitution. You've seen some of that already. But how to make amends for a wrong. You see what happens in chapter 21, 33 through 36 with irresponsibility. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 4 with theft. Chapter 22, 5 and 6 with negligence. Chapter 22, 7 through 13 with breaches of trust. And chapter 22, 4 through 14 through 15 with borrowed property. So God begins to instruct the people how they are to make restitution for irresponsibility, theft, negligence, breaches of trust, or borrowed property, all of which would fall under the banner of not stealing. You shall not steal. These are applications of that broader Ten Commandment principle. And then finally, we deal with purity in chapter 22, verses 16 through 20, where we read, the following, if a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now notice here something about purity. We don't, I mean, we've, we've been reading about how humans injure other humans and animals, injure humans and restitution of theft and irresponsibility and negligence and breaches of trust and property. And now all of a sudden he throws in this word about purity and the importance of not committing adultery and having sexual integrity. Why does he do that? Because that's another way we injure humans. You ever think about that? I don't think we typically view sex outside of marriage as a violation of justice, but that's the way the Bible thinks about it. How is it a violation of justice? Friends, it's taking something that doesn't belong to you. Even if you give it, it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours to give. It's God's. God says how you get to give it. And so the only warrant for taking sexual intimacy is the prior giving of an absolute total commitment in the form of a lifelong marriage vow. So in every case... That's not this. Sex is a form of theft. It's stealing. It's injustice. So what do we learn from humans injuring humans, animals injuring humans or each other, restitution, purity, all this about doing justice? Well, brothers and sisters, we learn that God is a God of justice. God's a God of justice. There is an equity to his legislation that shows that not only will God not let wickedness pass, but that he will punish it justly. Secondly, we see that the Lord has a concern for people over animals and property. Now, that does not mean that animals are not valued to God. Of course they are. Remember the book of Jonah? God makes a mention of a lot of cattle at the end as a reason why he was withholding judgment. So God does care about animals. The uh, book of Proverbs says that a righteous man cares for the life of his beast. So it's a mark of righteousness to love your dog and love your cat. Yeah, that cat too. And, 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 love, and love your cows and love your lambs and love your other goldfish and hamsters and things like that. And whatever other wildlife you may have in your residence. So we see that the Lord has, but, has a concern for that. But 
in our crazy messed up culture that like equates animal kingdom with human kingdom, we need to understand the Bible doesn't agree with that. Okay? Animals are valuable. I didn't say they weren't, but they're not as valuable as humans. All right? People have greater value than animals and property because people are made in the image of God, not animals and property. That's the uniqueness. It's a distinction of, it's not a distinction of worth in, in the sense of like a life is a life is a life, but it is a, a, a distinction in the fact that there is a unique priority. We see this in the Garden of Eden of mankind over animals. That's the way it's meant to function, and that's the way it will function in the new heavens and the new earth when the animal kingdom again serves the human kingdom as, as it was intended to do, and the human kingdom cares for the animal kingdom as the animal kingdom was meant to receive from humans. So not only does this legislation concerning people come first, and does that suggest priority, but the punishments for injuring people are much more severe than for injuring animals or damaging property. God makes clear that when human life is taken that human's life is taken. But where there's, other, where there's injury or death as a result of animals, sometimes it can cost the animal its life. Sometimes it can cost the master some money. But regardless, it's not the same as when a human being dies. Thirdly, these laws are intended to train the people in wisdom. Do you see that? They don't, like I said, they're not exhaustive. They don't cover every single is- issue. They're meant to provide glasses of wisdom for people to interpret how they would handle other situations that would be similar to these. Now, if you carefully study these instructions, what it teaches is that most of the time when there is wrong done to a neighbor or wrong done to another person, you are responsible to resolve it yourself. That's the principle. It doesn't always require a third party. In fact, one part of biblical wisdom is the ability to resolve disputes and restore justice without having to involve a third party. The goal of many of these laws is to teach the people of Israel when they've done wrong, fix it yourself. Fix it yourself. And so that is one of the ways in which restitution begins that that cost personally, that intentional uh, care for the other person and making sure that they are reimbursed in some way for the damage done to them. Now, let me conclude here. I know if you've been paying attention and as I've been preaching this, um, it's convicting. It's challenging. It rec- these laws begin to search down into our hearts and say, you know what? I, I haven't done this as I ought to have done. I haven't walked humbly with God. I haven't prioritized worship. I haven't loved kindness and compassion and mercy and done justice and cared for justice. And that's the problem. That's what these laws are meant to, in part, teach us. As we saw last week, one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments and laws like it are to show us our sin. So we ultimately fail, brothers and sisters, if we read this and we say, okay, I'll try to do better. Try to do better this week. I'll try to do better. I'll try to do better. That's a fail. That's fail. Not that failing, not that trying to do better is bad, but going about it in self-strength is bad, right? We should all read this and say, oh, I want to do better as one of God's people. As God's child, I, I should live higher up into what he's called me to live, but I can't do it myself. And so in conclusion, let's remember that it's Jesus to whom these laws ultimately point. When we read about walking humbly with God and sacrifice, we think of Christ. When we read about someone who loved kindness and mercy, 
who demonstrated great compassion towards the most vulnerable and got heat from it from all the religious people who prefer that their comfort not be disturbed. He loved kindness and mercy. He embodied this law. And he treated us this way. Do you realize that we've been treated this way because Jesus is this way? (laughs) And then who did more justice than Jesus? Who said, I'll take it? God, you're a just God. Their sin deserves punishment. Pour it out on me. All of it, every single drop, all their theft, all their irresponsibility, all their negligence, all their breaches of trust, all their injury to one another, all their lack of love, all their selfishness, all their lack of worship of me and idolatry, all the ways they have failed to demonstrate compassion and they have striven against me and fought for me first. Pour that out on me, Father. And the Father said yes and the Son said amen. And this is the one who perfectly obeyed all these laws, Jesus. He's the one who perfectly observed all the festivals, gave release to the oppressed, never wronged anyone, who also fulfilled the sacrificial system that propitiated God's wrath. And as we read through this collection, we should be all the more amazed at the life and death of Jesus who came to fulfill this law. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled it. Now, that doesn't mean he did every single thing that, like, he was consciously, okay, keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay. No, the principle of loving God and neighbor exactly the way God had intended it as embodied in this law, Jesus did it. Everything that God required of us. And through him and through faith in him, there's the good news this morning. God counts you as perfectly obedient to all the standards that this law sets out. In God's sight, if you are trusting in Christ, you are perfectly obedient in Christ to all of this. And that sets you free. sets you free. You're no longer under covenant obligation to keep this in order that you may live. But rather, Christ has kept it so that you will live. And while we remember the unique historical moment of this law code and work hard to see how Christ fulfills it using his work and the New Testament is our filter, we also see that the God who stands behind this law is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. He's a God who calls us to humbly walk with him. May he give us grace to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to you for this word, this strange word, to many of us because it falls in a stranger part of the book of Exodus to us, but your word is your word. And this word to us this morning is is just as much inspired by the Holy Spirit and just as much given to us for our instruction and righteousness and just as much designed to guide our steps into the way of peace as other parts of your word are. And so help us, God, as as we strive to, by your grace, walk humbly, to love mercy, to do justly, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the ways in which we have failed. We have broken your law. We have not done what we ought to do, and we have done what we ought not to have done. And we thank you for Christ who came to fulfill this law. If anyone is here this morning who has yet to trust in Christ, who has yet to look away from themselves and trying to do more and be better and and just just trying to be better yesterday than they are today. Lord, may may they give up 
that futile attempt at trying to do better themselves. And may they collapse completely on Christ. And may they trust in him as the only one who can make atonement for their sin and as the only one who can provide a righteousness that they cannot earn and as the only one who can safely lead them into God's presence as their greater mediator and savior forever. So we bless you for Christ. We thank you for the way this law points us to your character and who you are. We love you. We love you for who you are. We love who you are. We love that you are so just. We love that you are so compassionate. We love that you are so great and gracious. And we rise to worship you in light of who you are and what you've done for us. Please help us not to forget that we were once slaves too. We were in bondage to our sin. We know what it's like to be treated with grace as a sojourner, as Gentiles who have no right to be in a Jewish Savior's family. And we have been granted access by grace. So help us to treat one another that way, to respond with gratitude and love to you as you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, brothers and sisters.